Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Esther chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 on page 501. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susan. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the woman in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Mehemon, Biztha, Orbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Sethar, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king, Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Mires, Marcina, and Memekin, the seven nobles of Persia and Media, who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memekin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of, of the nobility, who have heard about the queen's conduct, will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media 
which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each person's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. And the second reading is from Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 28, and it's on page 1135 of the Church Bible. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28, on page 1135. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you very much, Gordon. It'd be great if you could turn back in your Bibles to Esther chapter 1. Uh, page 501 in the Church Bible. It's a tricky book to find, isn't it? Uh, tucked away in the middle of the, the Old Testament. Uh, so page 501. As Pete says, we're going to be looking at Esther over these next uh, four weeks. Um, he says he's never heard uh, a sermon uh, on this book before. Uh, I think as I've been preparing uh, for these four, I understand uh, probably why he's never uh, heard a sermon before. Uh, when Paul asked me last term if I would preach this term, and ben, ben Cooper actually is the one who suggested, well, you should preach on Esther. Um, I think um, I took up the challenge. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have done. But it's a really tricky book as you read through. Uh, and one of, uh, I think, one of the most tricky aspects of the book is, as you read through, you will try in vain to find even one mention of the name God. 
which is quite surprising for a book in the Bible. It seems that God is absent from this book of Esther. It seems as if God is, is hidden. As we all go through, you'll see, if, and if you, it's a great story to read. It'll take you about 25 minutes, I think, if you wanted to read the whole thing. It's a gripping story. It tells the story of the Jews in the, the winter capital of the Persian Empire, Susa. It tells of a great danger which comes to them. Uh, There's a a threatened uh, genocide. All the Jewish people in all the empire are going to be uh, killed on a particular day. It's the story of an apparently invincible king and his rule and his power. It's uh, a story of uh, the weakness of God's people and how they live and how they work and act. And yet it tells of how those people were delivered at that time, how they escaped the threatened genocide. And even though it's a gripping story, there's not one mention of God at all in the story. I wonder, and I imagine the, the people at the time in, in Susa, they must have questioned God at the time. And they knew this God who had promised good to his people. God had promised that through his people, the Jews, the whole world was going to be blessed. His blessing in life would go to everybody throughout the whole of the world. But they were a people living on the edge of existence and a nation wasn't their own. And God seemed to be hiding. And I wonder whether they cried out to God, oh God, you saved your people once before through the Red Sea. You did a great miracle. Why are you not doing that for us now? And yet we feel that same feeling, do we not? Or I certainly feel that same feeling. There's times when God seems to be so invisible. At times when you might cry out, God, why don't you just show yourself? We read of the great promises of God. We read tonight in Romans chapter 8. For we read those great words that in all things, God works, together, works all things together for the good of those who love him. And sometimes we cry out, well, how are you doing that? It doesn't seem to be that that's what you're doing. You see, we consider our lives and wonder where God is in it all. We can feel sad and disheartened. We look at our desires and many of them seem to have fallen flat and we wonder where God is. We sing great words like we sang at the beginning this morning. I'll fix my heart on righteousness. I'll look to him who hears me. And often we think, does he really hear me? And we might have cried out to God asking what cosmic scheme would be disrupted if he answered our prayers. And whether it's the prayer for, for a marriage or for children or for a dream job or the ministry we'd like or the friend to become Christian, whatever it is, we cry out to God and often it seems that nothing happens. And I don't know about you, but none of that sense and that feeling is made any better when I come across people who, who seem to see God working in every single moment of their lives. I think, well, great, but I just can't see it. And then I read the Bible and I think, well, in the Bible it seems that God is doing miracles all the time. There's great things happening. Uh, we, there's the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, there's the, the feeding of his people with manna from heaven. There's uh, people who are raised from the dead. You see Jesus walking on water. We see the resurrection of Jesus. All these great things happening. But in our lives today, it doesn't seem like that happens. 
You see, as I've been reading the book of Esther, I think this is where it's so helpful for us. Here's a a book in the Bible where God's people are living on the edge and yet God seems absent, seems hidden. A book in the Old Testament where we see no great miracles from God in heaven. A book in the Bible where we hear God say no words to his people. A book where God is not even mentioned once. And yet it's a book which should make us wonder about how God actually does work in the world and ultimately change how we might think God is at work in the world. You see, it begins with this uh, picture of uh, King Xerxes, this apparently invincible king. And that's the point of chapter one. I think we're meant to see King Xerxes and think, wow, he is a powerful king. Do you see what it says, verse 1? He, is, he ruled over 127 provinces. And then he says where it is from. And it's a huge kingdom if you plotted it on a map. I looked up this week some of the countries it would include. I'll have to read them out because there's so many of them. It would include Turkey and Syria and Lebanon and Jordan and Israel and Palestine and Iraq and Iran and Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and Afghanistan and Pakistan and India and into Egypt and extending into Libya and into Sudan. It is an enormous kingdom that this king ruled over. It was huge. And King Xerxes then gathers all the important people from all around. So he brings all the town mayors. He brings all the tribal leaders. He brings all the politicians, all the generals from the army. He brings them all to the winter palace in Susa to throw a feast for them. And to show, him how, show them how great he is. Show them how much wealth he has. Did you, did you see it in verse 4? For a full 180 days... He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. It's quite extraordinary. Now, if I was to invite you round to show you my, uh, my stuff and my, all my wealth and my greatness, well, I reckon we could have a, a leisurely lunch and then we could get them out and we could be finished by afternoon tea. It wouldn't take very long, but you see, Xerxes took six months to show how great he was and all the stuff he had. And can you imagine the costs of feeding all those people for six months as well? You see, the point wasn't to reward these people. The point that Xerxes was making to his whole kingdom here was, I am powerful. I am mighty. I am invincible. Don't think that you can take any of this away. You see, those nobles and those officials, those uh, military rulers, wouldn't go back to their own hometown and say, hey, I think we could take Xerxes. He's pretty weak. I think we should start a rebellion against him. You see, Xerxes is almost presenting himself here as if he is God himself. And and then I I love what he does after. And so after those days, so after the the six months, he then throws another seven-day party I guess if you've done six months, what's, a, what's another seven days for partying? And this time it's for the people of Susa. Maybe they've been helping in the last six months to kind of run this great party. And so Xerxes throws another party for them for seven days. They hold it in the palace courtyard. It's kind of the courtyard to the gardens, not even in the full gardens. And as the decor is described, you see it's sumptuous. It's expensive. It's meant to make you go, wow. 
This is the kind of stuff that would feature in celebrity magazines of the rich and the famous. Did you hear it in verse 6? And though the garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. I can imagine the rich and famous in the land going, hey, do you know, darling, we must get some hangings like that. You see, then there was the, the couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. Do you know, it's extraordinary. Did you see the pavement? Now, we're getting lots of nice new pavements around Fullwood, nice, uh, lovely um, uh, tarmac going down everywhere. But you see the kind of paths at Xerxes. He wouldn't be having any old tarmac. No, nothing like that. They were extraordinary. Costly jewels on the ground. Have you ever been in, have you ever been in places where somebody's glued a 50p to the ground? And you, know, you see people walking past and always trying to pick up a 50p's off the ground. Well, you imagine what they'd be doing here. They'd be trying to pick out diamonds and emeralds and pearls from the ground. You see... They, what the guests who came might have locked away as something really precious, put in their, their safe to be brought out for really expensive and really good occasions, well, Xerxes puts them on the pavement. And then in their hands, they hold goblets of gold, each one different, each handmade artisan gold goblets to drink the wine from. How awesome this king was! How could anything challenge such a king? Here's a king with an apparently invincible power. Well, in the the final day of the banquet, we see in uh, verse 10 uh, that the king was uh, high in spirits. And that's a a euphemism. Uh, He was uh, drunk. Uh, And this merry king wants to show off one last treasure to all the people there. He wants to display one last treasure to his greatness, his power, his invincibility. And really, what's quite an awful display, he dispatches seven eunuchs to bring his wife to a party of drunken men. He doesn't want her to come so that they might talk to her and hear her intellect. No, rather it was in verse 11, to display her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And that then, that incident leads to what brings this image of the invincible, powerful, mighty king to come crashing down. It's brilliant. Queen Vashti says, no, that's it. This king who can control everybody throughout this vast, enormous empire with so much power, his wife says no. And you see him for what he is. He is a weak man. The weakness that was meant to be there all, which was there all along, which we now see. And I think we are meant to, in some kind of dark way, laugh at King, at King Xerxes here. I love how it goes on to then say that what he does was, because he wants to make sure everybody thinks this was wrong and bad, he then it, it publicizes it in the entire kingdom, in everybody's own language, so everybody knows in the whole kingdom that Vashti said no. And here's the first thing that should make us pause and wonder. You see, are these superpowers that we see around the world in which we think they are the ones who are in control, 
and so invincible and so mighty and nothing could change. Are they really in control? Or is there something or someone else in control? Well, we see the apparently invincible power of Xerxes. And as we read on, we see the questionable hero of Esther. And we're going to look into chapter 2. You see, we read that the king removes Queen Vashti. But then he realizes that he no longer now has a beautiful wife to display. And so he's going to need to set out to find another one. And we see the process described in verse 3. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now, it seems if here we've got the, the Disney fairy tale being played out for us, that there's going to be some lowly, poor girl who's going to become queen. It's the, the stereotypical uh, girl's fantasy of to be given the beauty treatments in the palace and to become uh, a queen or a princess. But reserve judgment on that for now. Because in verse 5, we are uh, introduced uh, to our heroine. And have a look how she's introduced. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So here's Esther. We see in those verses she's had quite a hard life. She's never known her homeland. She's an orphan. We don't know why her parents died. Did she ever know them? We don't really know. So she had to be brought up by her cousin Mordecai. And yet one of the things that the writer really wants us to know about Esther was that she was lovely in form and features. We see that in verse 7. Now she's got a good body and she is stunning, is what the writer wants us to know. I guess she could command a large salary on the catwalks of the world. You see, and as because she is such a stunner, she is just the kind of girl the king is looking for. And so as we read on, we see that she is taken into the harem. Now notice that the girls, as we read this next little bit, the girls were brought or taken. This is not a a voluntary beauty contest. They were entering. Do you see verse 9? I don't think it is verse 9. Where is it? Verse 8, sorry. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who was in charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favor. You see, we see Esther now taken, I guess much like Daniel and his friends were, another point in the the Bible history, into the, the service of a king. And she does well. Esther manages to get herself liked by all those around But as we read on into verse 10, we see that this isn't really a safe environment. You see verse 10? 
Now, Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked to and fro near near the courtyard of the harem to find out who Esther was and what was happening to her. You see, just, just a glimpse there. She hadn't revealed her nationality because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. It's something we will see as we go on, that there's a vein of anti-Semitism which runs through the court. And so Esther keeps quiet about who she is. Esther's meek and quiet, and she accedes to Mordecai's command. But I wonder at this point, how might you have expected one of God's people to react at that point. Would you not have expected one of God's people there to stand up and say, I know I am one of God's people, I am a Jew, much as Daniel and his friends did. And not giving in to the pressure to conform. And yet Esther keeps quiet. We don't really know why she kept quiet. Maybe it was easier for her to keep quiet, easier just to blend in than to stand out, and it was maybe quite dangerous to stand out. Esther doesn't stand up for who she is. Possibly even a hint of Esther compromising her faith in a, a, a tough jam. Or maybe she wasn't even really very devout in the first place, and so it wasn't that hard for her to cover up who she was. Whatever the reason, it seems like a real compromise. Nonetheless, Esther does win the favor of Hegai. And so she then has 365 consecutive spa days in the beautiful surroundings of the Palace of Susa. We read of those in verse 12. Did did we read on? Now, before Carol's turn came to go into King Xerxes... She had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. I imagine all these women lying down for their massage with the oil of myrrh while they gazed out over the sumptuous gardens, palace, the palace gardens, and maybe had their nails done while looking at the fountains in in the lake. Now you might think that is bliss, a whole year of spa days. But you see, the, whole, the goal of this whole process is just terrible. The whole process was to prepare these young virgins for the king's bed. You see, what a terrible life that they had been taken to be part of. Look at verse 14. In the evening she would go there, that is, to the king's palace, and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. Oh, can you see these poor women being condemned to a life where their whole view of success was whether they could please a man in bed. After that, they're taken from the the virgin section to the king, and then they're taken to the concubine section, the, the used goods section. Their whole life defined by that experience. Would the king remember my name? You see, it's a form of sex slavery that Esther was brought into. If they do well in his bed, they might be called again by name. If not, well, they live in lonely exile in the concubine section. 
far from friends and family. It's an appalling system. And so the turn comes for Esther in verse 15. And you see what a terrible situation for Esther to be in. Esther, the Jew. And for a Jew to have sex outside marriage with another Jew would be a terrible thing. And yet here she is to be taken to the king to have sex with this pagan Gentile king to whom she's not married. You see, Esther is caught up in this whole sordid, sinful environment. And yet she's the one who pleases the king more than all the rest. You see, in verse 16, she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. See, Esther's the one girl who pleases the king more than any other. We're not told what it is that pleased him. We're not told what Esther did. But here she is, made queen. And the whole thing from chapter 1, verse 1 to this point has taken four years. You see, the banquet that Xerxes threw in chapter 1 it was, you see, in one, um, was, it was thrown in the, the third year of his reign. Esther is crowned queen in the seventh year of his reign. We see that in 2.16. And because of this, because of this process, it took four years so that Esther could become queen here. Another five years later, Esther is in a position where she can save the Jews, her people, from a threatened genocide. And we ask, was this whole terrible process one of chance? You see, the skeptic would say, of course it was. And yet when we are readers of the Bible, it should make us pause for thought. You see, we know the great promises that God made. We, I mentioned at the beginning the one big promise is that through one of Abraham's descendants, blessing and life would spread to the whole world. That promise was repeated in a slightly different form to Abraham's descendant, David, who was told that one of his, thro- his sons would be on the throne forever. And yet if the genocide which was threatened to happen, which we'll read about next week, then that son would never come. That son, Jesus Christ, God's Christ, would never have been born. And so chapters 1 and 2 make us wonder, is God in control? You see, we might have expected a great miracle as in the exodus from Egypt. And yet what we're being taught through chapters 1 and 2 and through the rest of the book is that God is bringing his purpose to bear in the world through the seemingly normal process of human life, the the mess and the sinfulness of human life. See, what we're being taught here is that God is the one who is ultimately in control of the superpowers. You see, Xerxes might have thought he was God, and yet we see he was weak. And so we have seen the Persian Empire dissolve. 
So too has the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire and the Ottoman Empire and the Mongol Empire and the Portuguese Empire and the French Empire, the Austro-Hungarian and the British Empire all have gone. You see, we might look at the invincible superpowers around the world and think God couldn't change anything. It's, it's, they're the ones who are in control. But what we're being shown here is that maybe those people are not in control after all. And we see Esther's happening in the midst of human sinfulness. The the one who will be the one who saves his people is someone who is compromised, like Esther, kept quiet about her identity as a Jew, pretended she wasn't one. And then Esther, who is caught up in the, the sinfulness of others, being used as a pawn by other people in the whole process. Even through all that mess... God could bring her to a position where she could save his people. It reminds me of what Joseph, one of the Old Testament characters, said to his brothers. Joseph's brothers had thought about killing him. In the end, they decided to make the financial decision and they sold him as a slave. And through the awful situation that happened to Joseph, he became in a position to save his people. And when he saved his people, he said to his brothers, you intended it for harm, but God intended it for good. You see, Esther challenges us. It pushes us to think, what kind of people would God use in his plans and purposes? In this story, we see he uses Esther, the weak and the powerless, the pushed and the pulled, pulled by her own sinfulness, pulled by the sinfulness of other people. This weak character is the one that God would use, even though he remains hidden. And what we see here is more than God promising to save some individuals. You see, this is about God's plan to accomplish his whole plan of salvation throughout the whole world. And we've been showing that he might do that through the ordinary, through the normal, through the mess of sinfulness in this world. You see, when we think God is absent and heaven hidden, it's easy to give way to despair. And we can think that God will not be able to achieve his purposes. And we might think he'll, he might get me to heaven. He'll save me, I'll get there. But I can't see how he's going to achieve his purpose of bringing everything together under Christ. Not least because he doesn't seem to do anything. He seems silent and inactive. It seems that powerful people are the ones who shape the world and move the world forward. The dictators, the superpowers. And it seems that God couldn't do anything because when you look at his people and they seem so weak and so pitiful, full of their own sin and pulled by the sins of others, how could any of that bring God's purposes to bear? Well, one of the things we see through Esther is that God, we should have confidence that God's plans and purposes are still active. And so when we pray, Lord, your king, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, we might not be asking for a miracle. Rather, through the messed up sinfulness of life, we may see God directing and moving his plans and purposes to be fulfilled. 
The hymn writer puts it well when he says, God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year. God is working his purpose out and the time is drawing near. Nearer and nearer draws the time, the time that shall surely be when the earth shall be filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And that's the God that we are called to trust in. The God who works in the midst of his seeming hiddenness to direct and bring his purposes to bear. And so will we trust him tonight? Well, let me pray that we would be able to do that. Father, we confess that often we think that you are inactive and hidden. So often we think that other people are in control of this world. We think that you can't work through sinful, messed up people. Father, would you reshape our thinking and help us to trust in you, knowing that you are sovereign over us and that you are in control. And that you are working your purpose out as year succeeds to year. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.